0: Let's uh, take our Bibles. Let's uh, run to the epistle of 1 John, which is near the end of your New Testament. If you need a Bible this morning, raise your hand, and one of the guys in the back will make sure to put a Bible in your hands. 1 John chapter 4, there's a little note page in your bulletin. If you'll grab that as well, that will be of some help, I think, along the way. It's loaded with plenty of Scripture this morning. And I'm going to just take us straight into um, the passage that we're going to share together. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 16, which are the newest verses in our ongoing series if you've been with us along the way. So allow me to begin at verse 7. Here's what we read. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Let's pray together, and then we're going to mine the riches of this wonderful passage together. Let's pray. And Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, and Holy Spirit, you have gone to great lengths to to, to uh, just to provide and then preserve your word for us. It's your heart on the printed page, Heavenly Father, and we know that full well and how blessed we are to hold in our laps, um, multiple expressions of your heart in our various versions this morning. We come hungry today to this time of being with you in your word. We, we know you have things you want to talk to us about, and this is how you're going to do that. And so we pray that your spirit would move in, a, in a, just a, a, a very real and personal way today, that you would bring your word to life for us. We don't want to just be hearers. We want to be doers of it. We want to understand it well and live out of our understanding of your word. So we bring nothing to the table. You bring it all. And we just make ourselves available to you. We know there is an enemy who prowls around and would love to devour and distract and take us away from a focused time on you. So we ask you to protect us from his schemes this morning. Bless our kids in Sunday school. May they see Jesus. And may we do the same. We ask it in his name and all God's people said, amen and amen. How to be real Christians in a world filled with fakes, phonies, and wannabes. If you've been with us from the outset, you know that this is the major theme that drives the Apostle John in this letter to late first century Christians. As we noted at the very outset of our study, though, John's style and approach in this epistle is very different from his style in his much larger Gospel of John. There he delivers an orderly, progressive, logically unfolding presentation of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. It has pace. The Gospel of John has flow. It fits neatly into a readable outline. And for all of us who appreciate organization and boxes and everything fitting into a box, the Gospel of John is tailor-made. But 1 John is not like the Gospel of John. Here John's approach is much more relaxed. It's much more informal. In fact, we said way back at the beginning of our study series that 1 John is, is really not a classroom. It's more like sitting in John's den With our shoes off, we're sitting in overstuffed chairs and our feet are toward the fire as John just effortlessly talks to us about how you and I can tell a real Christian from an unreal one. And for John, that's not complicated. It's not difficult. You can always tell the real from the fake. John will say throughout the five chapters of this epistle in three ways. By what we believe, by how we behave, and by how we love each other. And so for the five chapters of the letter, John just cycles through these three major proving points just as we might imagine that he would do if we were uh, sitting with him in his den and having a fireside chat. Two friends talking. He'll make a point Then he'll leave that point, he'll touch on something else, and then he'll circle back and pick up what he had talked about a little bit earlier. And that is precisely what is going on now as we step into chapter 4 and verses 7 to 16. This will actually be the third time that John discusses the topic of love in this letter. It won't be his last. The first time was in chapter 2 verses 7 through 11 and it was there that John presented love as the grounds for true fellowship between Christians. And then in chapter 3 verses 10 to 18 he talked about how love is a proof that a believer is really a son or a daughter of God by 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 the way we love each other. Now today, in 4, 7 to 16, John will take us in a couple of new directions that supply the reasons why we love God and why we love each other as distinctive marks of being real Christians. And so we step into verses 7 and 8, and, and this truly wonderful statement that, that is made in verse 8. God is what? Love. God is love. Which he repeats again in verse 16, just in case we missed it. But John does something interesting here. He, as he starts out in verse 7, he takes a conventional persuasive argument technique and he really turns it upside down because he begins with the application in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. Now, that's the conclusion that he wants to get to. That's that's ultimately where he's going to take us. (laughs) Beloved, let us love one another. Because that is a proof of being a real Christian. But an exhortation to love without the reason for doing so generally doesn't work very well. And John recognizes that. In fact, moms and dads in this room, you recognize this as well. Think about your kids as you tell them that they need to love each other and get along with each other. Okay, you tell them that, uh, and then they say, well, why should I, Daddy? Why should I, Mommy? And your answer, because I said so. Right? (laughs) Because I said so. Now, that's not likely to produce the desired outcome, is it? No, it's not going to do that. What is needed for our kids is is, is to lay hold of that, that understanding of love that you're striving for is to take them into a deeper place, a deeper place of relationship and origin of love. You might say, you know, you love your brother. You love your sister because you yourself are the product of the love of mommy and daddy. Your love comes from out of that. You are here because our love for each other uh, was very great and we loved you and wanted you. And we love you and we want your brother. You and your brother or sister share the same flesh and blood. You share the same last name. You're part of only one family in the entire world. Our family. Love because of those kinds of, of things. Now that speaks to something much deeper much more personal and wonderful than saying love because i said so that doesn't really work john here lays out the infinitely more deep and personal reasons for loving that in, that supply the rationale for why you and i would love each other and as you already know for john the reasons are not sociological they're not utilitarian It's not because loving each other is the more human way or it leads to a better, more harmonious society or community or church or it makes for a more peaceful backseat on a long road trip. That's not why you love. It has everything to do with God. The rationale for loving each other has everything to do with the person of God. That's what John says. In fact, would you agree with the statement that I put there on your note page? Everything has everything to do with God. Would you agree with that statement? Everything has everything to do with God. When we do something in our life and we disconnect it from God, ultimately we know it's not going to go well, right? It's just not going to go well. When we do something, anything, and we leave God out, it's not going to be what it is could be all we have to do is ask adam and eve in the garden of eden when they when they ignored god when they left god out and they purposely did what they wanted to do that action that action took them in an entirely different direction than god wanted to go with them everything has everything to do with god you know here at ibc we we like to say we do life in this place. We do life. If somebody asks you outside of our church family, well, what is IBC about? You can say, well, at IBC we do life. And they say, well, what does that mean? Well, it's, it's actually an acrostic, L-I-F-E. It stands for loving God together, investing in each other, finding places to serve, and the E stands for enlarging God's kingdom. That is a great way to describe our church family. But everything about that statement has to do with God, doesn't it? Everything has everything to do with God. And that's essentially what John is saying here about love. The application, love, uh, let us love one another. Why? Because of God. Because of God. This, this principle lies behind the whole letter. We all live what we believe about God. Agreed? You do. I do. John says love for each other is a defining attribute of a real Christian, a genuine child of God, because love is a defining attribute of God himself. Yeah. Verse 7 again. Love is from God, and whoever loves is a child of God and knows God. Now, what John has previously said to us in other parts of the letter about confessing Jesus as, as God come in the flesh to be our Savior and our Lord and, and living out a moral behavior that that reflects the values of God as being defining features of a real Christian, that still stands. Yet here he's going to emphasize that love is a defining quality of a true Christian's life. It's a, true, it's a defining quality because... Because God is what? His love. Therefore, love will be a defining quality of our lives. Notice it's not love is God. That's a dyslexic reading of verse 8. It gets it backward, doesn't it? It's God is love. And that's not just a statement about his nature or his character, it's an equally a statement about God's actions. Everything He does is love-driven. It's in His nature to love, and that love isn't ever going to just be emotional or relational. It's going to be observable. It's going to be uh, definable, tangible action. Maybe you'll remember from our previous explore of love in this in this study. That that biblical love can be defined this way. Self-giving for the good and joy of another, even at the cost to oneself. The Bible's word for this kind of love is agape. From the Greek word agape, which means... Self-giving, self-sacrificing love. Every occurrence of love that we find in verses 7 to 16 uh, is this word, agape. God's nature is to give of himself, to sacrifice of himself, even at great, great cost to pursue the joy of the one that he loves, to pursue their their, their, their good, their best. And in the course of doing that, his joy is enlarged as well. A Bible scholar by the name of A.W. Pink describes seven qualities of God's love. He's a a Bible teacher from the the last century. He's no longer living. But as I was doing background study for our time together, I came on to this, and I was so blessed by it, I thought, you know, I just can't keep this to myself. I'm going to share it with my friends. And so perhaps sometime this week, Uh, you might want to pull out your little note page that you have in front of you and and just use it as part of your quiet time with the Lord. Uh, Since the supporting verses are there on the page, we're not going to read those verses here in this moment. But I was so blessed by just what I I read that I thought maybe uh, this would be a blessing for you as well. However, we will take a look at these seven qualities very quickly. On your note page... God's love is uninfluenced, undeserved, but uninfluenced primarily. There is nothing in us that influences God to love us. Would you agree with that? Nothing in us. He loves us because he chooses to love us. And he chooses to love us because it is is his nature to what? To love. Because he is love. God's love is eternal. God's nature is eternal. He has no beginning. He has no ending. And so as He is, so is His love towards us. It's going to be an unending eternal love. God's love is sovereign. God never asks for permission, does He? He never has to check in with somebody before He decides to do something. He directs His love as He determines to accomplish what He desires. And what He desires ultimately brings Him glory. God's love is infinite. The reference there is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. In verse 4 of Ephesians 2, uh, his love is called great. It's a great love. And when the word great is used in conjunction with God, who the Bible tells us is omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent, then great means infinite, doesn't it? And so it's an infinite love. God's love is infinite. No limits of any kind. And that love, says verse 5, is for you and me. And then it's unchangeable. God doesn't change, does he? No, James chapter 1 says he never changes. And so neither does his love in quality or kind or length or depth or height or focus or intensity. It never changes. It's constant. And in a world where, where change is the only constant, how good it is that we are the objects of an unchanging Love. Is that good? That is good. God's love is holy. There are a myriad of unholy, imperfect loves in our world, but only one that is utterly, thoroughly, and completely holy. Pure in motive, never tainted, never marred by sin. It is sourced in the God whom 1 John 1.5 says is light, holiness. Now, that last one, uh, that passage, we are going to read that together. God's love is unassailable. That means it can't be attacked. It can't be overcome. It is unassailable. The reference is Romans chapter 8, verses 37 and 39. And these are verses that I'm guessing are quite precious to you. You've read them many times. But can we read them as a church family right off of the screen? Would you do that with me? Let's do it out loud together. From the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we all say, Amen Amen and Amen is right. What does God's character, His nature to love mean for you and me? Brothers and sisters, it means everything to us. And whoever loves, loves at personal cost to oneself with that self-giving for the good and joy of another, that kind of a love, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. As it is God's nature to love, so will it be so for his children. That's what John says. That's what the Holy Spirit says through John. We are born of God. We know God through our faith in the saving work of Jesus. As we learned back in chapter 3, that makes us adopted sons and daughters of the living God. And like father, like son or daughter, goes the reasoning. If the general direction of our lives is fundamentally self-oriented, self-loving, without evidence of an other focus or an other-driven love, then God can't be our Father. We can't be real Christians. That's what John would say. Remember the application, let us love one another. That's where John is going to unrelentingly keep pointing us. Why? Because God is love. And all who share His nature are going to share His love with others. They have to. Well, still we could ask, though, how, how does God show His love? to us how does he do that it's one thing to say that you are love that you really love but how do we know it has to be seen it has to be experienced in action how do we know that God actually loves us how do we know that well if you flip your note page over let's take a look at verses 9 and 10 because they answer the question In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God's love, says John here, is made real by the coming of Jesus. Would you agree? Yes, you would agree with that. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That word manifest, the Greek word means to take something that you can't see and make it visible. That's what the word means. God took the unseen love that resides all the way from eternity past between the three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He takes that love and and, and makes that love visible. When he sends Jesus into our sin infected world so that we could personally experience that love through our faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's how we know that we're loved, and to the degree that we're loved, because God sent Jesus. Our faith in what Jesus did in obedience to God's directing love restored the relationship that our sin had destroyed. That's how we know we're loved. Remember from, the moment, from, from a moment ago that one of the qualities of God's love is that it is uninfluenced, uninfluenced. His love is eternally independent of all causation. Other than His own sovereign nature, His own choice to love, which comes from within Himself. He doesn't love you because you're lovable or because I am love worthy. Verse 10 makes that clear. Not that we have loved God, but that He what? He loved us. It's it's relatively easy to, to love people that love us. I love people who love me, generally. But to love without respect to the love or lovableness of another person, boy, that calls for an entirely different kind of love. God's love is never based on our loveworthiness, our lovableness And one reason that is true is because God loved us before we even existed. Did you know that? He loved us before we even existed. So it can't be because of us that we're loved. Now the proof text for that, how about Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3, 4, and 5? They're on your note page. Check this out. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the what? The foundations of the world. Before the world's foundations were even laid by God, we were chosen by him. That we should be holy and blameless before him in, what's the next word? Love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Man, we could spend the rest of our time right here and barely scratch the surface. But you catch the substance of, of what's being said. And then we take that truth in Ephesians 1 and we join it to another truth out of Romans chapter 5, verse 8. And, 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 and God's love for us becomes even more extraordinary. What does verse 8 of chapter 5 of Romans say? But God shows his love for us in this while we were what? Still sinners. Christ died for us. If God chose to love us before we even existed and in spite of what we were when we did exist. Sinners. Sinners by choice. Sinners by nature. Sinners by birth. How could we ever think that His love for us is based on anything love-worthy within us? It's all God, isn't it? John will say in verse 19 of chapter 4 here in 1 John, that'll come into our sights next time, Lord willing. He says, we love because He first loved us, not because we loved Him first. Our love is only ever going to be a responding love to the love of God. God's love is uninfluenced. It's an initiating love. Ours is always going to be a responding love. Because He is love. But how do we see? How do we experience this love? Well, there's a beautiful description of that in verses 9 and 10. How do we see it? How do we experience it? God sent his only son into the world so that we might, what's the next word? Live through him. Might live through him. We're born spiritually dead. Jesus comes to pay the penalty for our sin with his life so that we might be made alive. In this is love, John says, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Here, brothers and sisters, is love in action. God saving us through Jesus. God sent his son and God sent him as a propitiation. Now, do you remember that big, hairy theological word, propitiation when we were from when we were back in chapter 2 everybody needs to say yes i remember that i remember that clearly pastor tim propitiation from chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 that's exactly right in case we all need to help our memories along a little bit we flip back to chapter 2 look at verses 1 and 2 would you John writes, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, and we all do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the what? Propitiation for our sins and not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation. Do you remember what it means? Everybody says, yes, yes, Yes. you're great. It refers to uh, an, an offering made to satisfy or turn away the perfect just wrath of God against our sin and replace that wrath with favor. That's what propitiation means. To turn away the wrath of God and replace it with favor through an offering. God satisfies His own wrath against sin, our sin, by giving Jesus to die in our place. Why? Because he loves us. That was kind of weak, (laughs) brothers and sisters. Why? Because he loves us. us. That's right. It's kind of like the bank paying off in full the mortgage that you owe on your house. They come to you and they say, listen, we love you and we love your family so much that we just want to pay off your house in full. You will never have another house payment again. Why? Because we love you so much. Well, that's never going to happen. Is it? That, that will never happen. But brothers and sisters, that is exactly what happened spiritually with God and on a scale and in a realm infinitely greater than anything to do with an earthly mortgage. God himself makes the offering that turns away his own wrath and here's the glory and wonder of the gospel and the cross. The one who we by our sin wounded, offended, hurt and killed personally himself makes the offering that not only turns away his righteous wrath but at the same time allows him to pour out on us an eternal undeserved love and all we can do is shake our head in amazement and why did this happen because god is love now i know you're seeing this with me god propitiates his own wrath we don't do anything but believe what god through jesus has already done Who else but God would come up with something like this? When does the horrifically offended personally provide the means that takes away his own hurt and do it at the cost of his own son? Only God would do that. And why would God do that? Because God is love. This is what makes the sacrifice of Jesus so utterly incredible. On your note page, 2 Timothy 1.9 says, God has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything that we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. God pays off his own wrath against our sin. Jesus' death is our propitiation. That is love eternal, self-denying, self-giving, self-dying love. To the question, how much does God love us? We could instantly answer as much as the distance between the nail-pierced hands of Jesus upon the cross. Amen? That's how He loves us. How much He loves us. And again, let's not lose sight of where John is going with all of this. Remember the application, the first words of verse 7, let us love one another. That brings us to the last point there on your note page, real love and the Christian's claim to faith. Verses 11 and following. Verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. What's John saying? He's saying this. Since God is love and we share his nature as his children, we're expected to live out God's love in us by loving one another with the same kind of love that he loves with. Now, will it be to the same degree? No, it cannot be to the same degree. But it can be love in kind. Your wife, your husband, your siblings, your family, your fellow church members, and those outside of this church are all places where this self-giving, self-sacrificing kind of love can be displayed. And when it is displayed, it shows God's love to a world that doesn't know about this love. Jesus actually frames it this way. Just hours before He goes to the cross for us. John chapter 13 verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give you, He says, that you what? You love one another. Just as I have loved you sacrificially at great cost to Myself, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you're My disciples, that you belong to Me if you have love for one another. Could it be more clear? <laughs> the unseen God thus reveals himself through the visible love of real Christians. Love gives sacrificially for the benefit and joy of others. God shows his love to us in sending Jesus. Jesus shows his love for us in dying for us and rising from the dead. And we show their love is really in us When it flows out of us and touches other people's lives. That's how others will know that God is real. As we love. And then John adds in verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us. Because he has given us of his spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. Now he doesn't say how we know if we have the spirit or not. He really doesn't even need to go there. The context lets us know that we can only love like God loves and Jesus loves if the Holy Spirit is present in us because it is a Holy Spirit-empowered kind of love. When the Holy Spirit comes to live within us upon genuine confession of faith in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, then we have the Spirit living inside of us and then we become capable of loving like God loves And the evidence of the Holy Spirit's love in us comes out in the form of various virtues. We call them the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. What are the fruit of the Spirit? There's nine of them, nine virtues. What are they? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But brothers and sisters, what leads off the list of nine? Love. It is the love of God. And then in verse 14, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Now, I could have a really intense interest in spiritual things and claim to have incredible religious experiences in my life, But if those are apart from the required confession of faith in Jesus as the Son of God and the Savior of the world and my Savior, then if if, if I'm making those claims to great spiritual experience without Jesus in my life, then I am little more than a spiritual enthusiast. Would you agree with that? Because I don't have Jesus in my life. And if I claim to be to believe in Jesus, but there's no evidence in my life of Holy Spirit-empowered love flowing out of my life, then I'm really nothing more than a spiritual name-dropper. Would you agree with that? Why? Because if Jesus is in my life, the Holy Spirit is in my life, and if the Holy Spirit is in my life, then the love of God is going to do what? It's going to flow out of my life. It has to. Verse 16. So we have come to know. And believe. The love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love. Abides in God. And God abides in him. That the real Christian confesses Jesus as Savior. And as a byproduct. Of Holy Spirit generated transformation. I prove the authenticity and the genuineness of God's love for me and my love for God. He repeats what he says in verse 8, in verse 16. God is what? Love. The distinguishing feature of all that God does is that he does it with a self-giving love. He gives the very best of himself for the good and the joy of others. For the good and joy of of you and me. And so like father, like son. If we are sons and daughters. Of his eternally great love. We're not going to love him. We're going to love each other. We are loved. And we will be loving. That's what John says. That's what the Holy Spirit says. So let me end with this. What would those who know you. What would those who know me, what would those who know Idlewild Bible Church attenders say about our claim to saving faith? Our claim to be real Christians. What would they say based on what they see in our marriages, in our relationships with our kids? in our relationships with one another here in the family of IBC, and in our relationships with those who have no connection with IBC at all, what would those persons say about our claims to be real Christians? What would they say? The Holy Spirit, through John, keeps going back to this. They're real when they love. When they love each other sacrificially. When they love like God loves. It's all part of what it means to be real. loved, let us love one another. Amen and amen. Now, I could, at this point, offer up all kinds of suggestions for what that love would look like. I don't need to do that. There's 10,000 ways for that to, to express itself in a group this size. All I would say is practically you say, Holy Spirit, in this moment, how would you like the love of God to look in my life? I'll do that. That's the only application you need to take away. Holy Spirit, what would the love of God look like in this moment in my life? Tell me, show me, I will do that. Amen and amen. Let's pray together. Well, Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, how good it has been to be in your word today and how good, Father, to be reminded of the great love with which you have loved us. Uninfluenced, you have loved us through Jesus. Oh, if there be one in this room who has yet to experience your love in a personal relationship with you through faith in Jesus, may today be the day and now be the time. Help us to help that one or more than one today. Lord, for those of, those of us who know you, man, the last thing we want is to leave this place and for it all to be theory. We don't want it to be in our, just in our heads. We want it to be in our hearts and then flowing out of our hearts and into our lives. We want to be loving like you love so that the world will know that you sent Jesus. Make it so as we make ourselves available to you. And we will say this, we love you, but only because you loved us first. And all God's people said, Amen and Amen.